Uh, Heavenly Father, we're about to look at the scriptures, and whenever we do this, we recognize that we're, we're looking into your thoughts, your desires, your purposes in our life. It's not a trivial thing. It's not a trivial thing, Father. I pray that you get my heart and my friend's hearts here in a place where we can receive whatever it is you want to tell us today, Father. I ask for your name to be glorified and magnified in this scripture that we're about to look at. In the name of Jesus, amen. Therefore, I tell you, Jesus says to his disciples, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For this life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. How much of, how, of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat or what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So that's Luke 12, and it is a, a picture of Jesus declaring war on anxiety. Jesus hates anxiousness. He hates the encroaching pressure on the souls of people to worry about things in life. He does not want you to be anxious. He wants us to be done with this, which is why he says, do not be anxious. He is, he is attacking our worry. He's attacking our anxiety by wringing out the power that it has in our lives. And his point is that everything in your life that you worry about is in God's hands. It is in his hands hands, your food, your clothes, your very life, all of it belongs to God. All of it is in his hand. He governs it completely. And so Jesus's point is, stop worrying. And at the end of this, he tells us not to seek these things to alleviate the worry. He says, the world worries about these things. That's what the world worries about. That's why they're anxious. But you're not the world. You have a father and he is the omnipotent God of the universe. Everything is under his governance. And he knows, he knows that you need these things. He knows it. And so he will take care of you. Rather, Jesus says, than seeking these things in life, in the world, instead, seek the kingdom. Seek the kingdom. And implicit in that is to seek the king of that kingdom, our Father, which he mentions here, which takes us to Psalm 63. This is where we've been for the last few weeks. 
We are still here, despite that <laughs> a passage from Luke 12. We are still here. Psalm 63, if you can go there in your Bibles. While you're turning there, I'm going to read to you verse 1, and then we're going to move through sections of this psalm. Psalm 63 begins with this verse. You remember it from the first week we were in this passage. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Psalm 63 is about the same thing that Jesus' sermon in Luke 12 is about. It is about seeking the kingdom. It is about seeking the king, God, even when you are at the darkest point in your life. It's about seeking God as though he is everything to you, the, the difference between life and death. And Jesus is saying here, don't, don't seek or worry about or be anxious about or fret about these things, these things in your life that are consuming you. Rather, seek God as if your life depended on it. And last time we read, uh, last week we read uh, verses 2 through 5, and David there proves in his language that he does, in fact, think that God is everything to him. God is the center of his universe, um, and we see that summarized in verse 3. Let me read to you verse 3. David says, because, God, your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. This is how David sees God. This is how David sees his God, this king, this kingdom that Jesus is talking about in Luke 12. And David says that God's love is better. It is a better experience than anything we can experience in this life. And so Jesus in Luke 12, what he is doing is he is fighting for us to see this love. He wants for us to see this love. He is desperate for us to see this love so that he can put to death all of the anxiety, all of the worry, all of the concern that robs us of joy in God. When Jesus says, do not be anxious about your life, it is another way of him saying, seek God. Seek God. And keep in mind David's context. He wrote this as the passage, or as the line on top of this uh, passage says, while he was in the wilderness. And he's dealing with more than simply a, a concern for food in the wilderness or concern for water or clothing. His son, if scholars have this correct, is trying to kill him and take the throne. And this is his, this is his response. This is David's response. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. David wants to go back home. David wants to go back home. But home isn't for David what life can provide. Home for David is God. It's God himself. Because for David, God's steadfast love is better than anything life could provide. And he knows 
this is true, that it is better. But right now, David is struggling to feel that love. He is struggling to know that love intimately in the depths of his soul. And the reason we're here in Psalm 63 today and for the next two weeks is we need to hear this as well. We need to hear David struggle through this, all of us, whether you're in the middle of the darkest hour of your life or whether you're in the clouds. David has something to say to all of us and to say to mothers in particular. Because if anyone has the right to be anxious from time to time, it is the mothers that are in this room and the mothers around the world. Yet Jesus is telling all of you and us, me, don't be anxious. Just don't be anxious. Instead, seek the kingdom, seek the king. And as we'll see in Psalm 63, that God who is king is our source of ultimate satisfaction. Ultimate satisfaction. He is the only thing that can fill our souls. So turn with me again. You're already there. Psalm 63. Let's start with verse 5. We're going to start with verse 5 and read through verse 8. We're going to focus on the beginning of this passage this week, and the next week we'll wrap up these few verses. Verse 5 says this, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you, God, have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Four verses, massive realities in these four verses. And so we're going to focus on just the front end this week, and the next week we'll focus on the back end. David says at the beginning here, my soul will be satisfied. And he describes a kind of satisfaction that he is anticipating from the future. It's a future satisfaction. It's coming to him. It's the same kind of satisfaction he has vaguely as eating the richest food in the world. Rich, fat food. Now remember, David in verse 1 was about to die. He's about to faint for lack of water in verse 1. And so he was using water as an analogy for God. He said, earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you, God. That's what he's saying. And now he's shifting gears and he is laying claim on a reality, a truth that is going to happen for him in the future, namely feasting on God as though he is the richest and most extraordinary food in the world. This is how David sees God. He's saying being with God is a kind of satisfaction. It is a kind of joy. It is a kind of, of delight in the soul that feels a lot like feasting on the finest foods, drinking the greatest drink. God to David is really this great. God to David is really this awesome and this beautiful. And last week we talked about how David saw God's power and God's glory in the sanctuary and that he he encountered the steadfast love of God. He knows God. This is his God. And all of those things 
lead him to praise God, to bless him. In fact, in verse 4, we saw that he will bless God now as long as he lives. He's not going to stop blessing God. To David, God is everything, everything to him. And so we're not surprised when David transitions from really what is just simply expressing his soul's desire to be satisfied in God. He, he's still in the wilderness. His soul's desire to be satisfied in God, and that leads into him praying, praising God with joyful lips. This is David's response. He is expecting that when that satisfaction comes, praise and worship will, will erupt from his heart and his soul toward God. And it rises from what we see here is in verse 5, my soul will be satisfied, a satisfaction that happens. It hasn't happened yet, but it's going to happen. He's expecting it. He's anticipating it. The question we have today is this, how? How does that happen? How is David in the middle of a wasteland of the soul, not only expecting and anticipating future satisfaction, but how does he actively draw that satisfaction and that joy into the present when he doesn't feel any of it right now, when he is longing for it, and that's all he has. This is what he's doing. He is looking at a future reality and saying, I know how good you are. I'm going to pull it into the present. And he is obeying Jesus, saying, do not be anxious. The question is how he does it. So for most of us, anxiety isn't a thing that we control. It isn't a thing we direct. It's something that happens to us. And we don't enjoy it when it happens. We don't control it. We often feel like we have zero control and we hate anxiety. We hate it. We hate this encroaching pressure on our hearts and our souls that something needs to happen. If something doesn't happen, it's going to all fall apart. So how do we, like David here, obey Jesus? How do we do that verse and put to death the anxiety that overwhelms us? And, and what's the pathway between the wilderness of the soul and actually experiencing the satisfaction in Psalm 63.5? How do we do that? Well, on the previous passage we looked at in Luke 12, you may have recognized that at the beginning of that passage, was the word therefore. Therefore, Jesus started out with. And what that means is that whatever happened before his command to do not be anxious was seminal and, and critical for us to understand how we are to go about not being anxious, how we make war on the anxiety in our lives and how we win that battle. So I'm going to listen, I'm going to read uh, the, the parable that Jesus says before he says, therefore, do not be anxious. Starts in verse 13. And this is really going to form the foundation, the basis by which he's telling his disciples, don't be anxious. Listen to this parable. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But Jesus said to him, man, who, am, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. 
Keep in mind, this is going towards anxiety. Why should we not be anxious? And he told them, Jesus told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Jesus comments on the parable, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Now, there are many things in this parable. Some of them we've talked about in the past. They are all glorious. They're all wonderful. I'm being forced to focus on one. Um, What does this parable have to do with being anxious, and why is it so critical that we are not anxious? What does it tell us? How does it inform Jesus' command? So according to verse 14, at the beginning of this parable, Jesus is teaching this here so that we recognize that one's life, your lives, do not consist of what you own. What you own does not dominate your life. What you have in this life isn't what defines who you are. And to communicate that truth, what he does here is he tells this story. There's a man who yields this enormous crop in his own land and desiring to shore up as much of it as physically possible. He tears down his old barns, builds up new ones, has these massive storehouses. Now he can have all the grain. And he looks to his soul and he says to his soul, Soul, you've got ample goods. You're all set. You have no need to be anxious ever. You have no need to worry because you've got all, all this food, all this crop, His soul can now relax and eat and drink and be merry. This is what this man is thinking in this parable. And then God shows up and takes his life and refers to him as a fool. And in that moment, this encounter between God and this fictional man that Jesus is telling the story through, we see a glimpse of something profound we see the meaning of life. We see why we're here to begin with. Jesus says, to summarize this, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus' entire point in this story is that the man's focus was not on God. It was on what he could accumulate in this life to secure himself and to avoid any anxiousness, to avoid any fear that he might have, that he didn't have things in control. That's what this is about. It was about the treasures that he could accumulate in his life to create this anxiety-less space that he could live in. And so we're faced with, in this parable, two kinds of satisfaction. Remember, Psalm 63, 5. Two kinds of satisfaction exist in the world. There isn't a third kind. There's only two kinds. 
One kind is rooted in the things that you have in life. Everything you have, anything you have. And the other kind of satisfaction is rooted in God alone. And in order to silence anxiety and worry, this man in this parable accumulated as much as he possibly could. He laid up treasure for himself, which is the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here, being rich toward God. They're two different satisfactions. And we know this is the case because later on in this chapter, as Jesus brings this sermon to a close, he says this in verses 32 through 34. Listen to the language Jesus uses as he sums up this sermon. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with treasures in, he in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And here's the clincher. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And again, there's probably about 20 sermons in this passage that I would like to preach, but I got one today. And so we're going to zero in on this one question. What is the key in Jesus' sermon to not being anxious? What is the key to not fearing, especially as it's communicated in this summary at the end? What is, how is Jesus telling us to achieve this anxious, less life? And the key is here in this last statement. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Everything that might create anxiety in our lives, whether good or whether bad, is connected to treasure. Connected to treasure. What is it ultimately, in the moment of our anxiousness, that is the treasure of our lives. Now, to be sure, that does not mean that there aren't legitimate medical issues, legitimate medical issues associated with anxiety, nor does it mean that solving anxiousness or worry or concern is the same for every person. So I want to make sure that's clear. It isn't the same. But what this passage does tell us is that Every anxious thought that we have or feeling that rises up in our heart is connected to something that is governing our heart. At some level, everyone feels this. Everyone feels this, especially mothers, like I mentioned earlier. I feel it every single day. I feel it about everyone in this church who I love. I feel it about my family. I feel it about my wife, my children. Anxiousness crowds in every day. I felt it anxiousness writing a sermon about how not to feel anxious. Um, and so I had to preach this every day to myself this week. We all have something or some things that we feel anxious about, yet Jesus is telling us with the kindest voice, don't be anxious. Fear not, little flock. Fear not. And he's talking to us in that verse. He's talking to you individually. Fear not. So how do we go about fighting anxiety? Well, before we turn back to Psalm 63 and look at how David does it, I want to look at something Paul says in Philippians 4. You can stay where you're at right now. We'll have them up on the screen here. 
This is going to show us that there is hope. There's a secret. There's, some, there's a method to fighting anxiety in our lives. No matter if your struggle is with anxiousness every week or every month or every day or every hour, there is hope. So Philippians 4, 11 through 13 says this. This is Paul talking to the Philippian church. I have learned, Paul says, in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound, equally dangerous. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, facing abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, some of you may be surprised to find out and discover today, probably for the first time, that the phrase, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, literally has nothing to do with a touchdown in the NFL. <clears throat> That's shocking to a lot of people. Um, it actually has to do with contentment. It has to do with fighting anxiety, fighting worry. It has to do with navigating being brought all the way down to the bottom, low, or navigating being brought all the way to the top and abounding, facing plenty and hunger. And Paul summarized this and says, in every single circumstance, I found the secret to not being anxious, to not fearing what's going to happen, to not worrying about my future, whether it's high or low or, or whatever it might be. How does he do this? He says, I can do all things, including not be anxious through Christ. That's the hymn in this passage. Who strengthens me. And we saw this last Sunday. If you were with us last Sunday, you remember, Paul is entirely reliant on Christ's strength. He has no strength in his flesh at all. He even boasts in his own weakness. He relies on Jesus Christ because that's all he has whether things are going extraordinarily well or whether things are falling apart for him. And he's saying here that he learned the secret. He's learned the secret. And this is great because I want to learn the secret too. I want to know the secret to how I won't have to be anxious anymore. How do I obey Jesus in Luke 12 when he says, do not be anxious? And this is going to help us understand Psalm 63 when we switch back there in a second. Paul explains in verse 19, just a little ways down from this passage, and he invites the Philippians and he invites you into the experience of this secret. He says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. That is a wild thing for Paul to say. Do you believe this? Do you believe that about yourself? I mean, like, really believe it. It's one thing to, to sort of say, I agree with that statement. That's a true statement. It's another thing to feel the reality of this statement in your bones. Think about what's being said here. Every single need you will ever have, every single need you will ever have, is ultimately going to be supplied by God. Doesn't mean every want. Doesn't mean every desire. Lydia agrees with me. <laughs> Doesn't mean every desire. Doesn't mean every, every want. It means every need. And the repository, the storehouse from which God draws 
his supplying of those needs is, get this, the riches, his riches, in glory, in Christ Jesus. Infinite, unsearchable, immeasurable riches. There is no fountain deeper in the world that God could pull from to grant us our needs. That is an amazing thing. Your father, Jesus says, knows what you need. He knows it. And so don't be anxious. This is the secret that Paul is talking about. It is a trusting and a relying on God's provision through Christ Jesus. And it is found by the recognition that God isn't pulling this from any worth or value we bring to the equation. He is pulling it from the infinite riches of Christ. That's where God goes when he says, I need to answer that person's prayer. Jesus' glory. There's plenty of it here to go around. And then he provides the need, guaranteed. This is not an empty promise. I want you to believe this. This is not an empty promise. If you belong to Christ, this promise is as much yours as it is the Philippian church that Paul is talking to in this letter. It is much yours as it is the Apostle Paul. God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's what it says. Believe it. It's true. It is real. Now, you've been very patient with me in this sermon on Psalm 63 that we have not been actually in Psalm 63 very often. So we're going to go there now and I'm going to show you this reality in David's text. How does David, in the middle of the wilderness of the soul, darkest night imaginable, I mean, think about it. Is there not a reason for him to be anxious right now? His own son is hunting him down to take his throne. He has every right, as far as I'm concerned, to at that moment have a, weak, a moment of weakness where he is anxious. How does he, through this psalm, put to death anxiety? How does he find his way back home into the embrace of God where he is completely, totally, absolutely satisfied in God? Psalm 63, let me read verse 5 through 7 again. My soul, David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you, God, with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you, you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. David says that his soul's satisfaction, his soul's joy, coming through his mouth in praise, comes to him when he remembers God on his bed and when he meditates on him in the watches of the night. Now notice his satisfaction, his praise, and his joy, all of those things in this passage are future tense. Will be, will praise. They're all, will sing. They're all future tense. They're not there yet. He is leaning forward in his language and saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to meditate on you. I'm going to remember you in the night. It's not an accident that he's using that language in the night. I mean, I, I'm... There's no doubt that David literally meditates and thinks on God in the evening. It's awesome. But don't 
miss the fact that he's using night language when everything is falling apart. It is night for him. This is night for him. This is the darkest time. This is the darkest night of his soul. Deep in the watches of the night where hopelessness presses in on you. You guys all know what that's like to have anxiety in your heart. I mean, maybe it's something trivial like, I've got to, get a, I've got to make a plane early in the morning and I can't fall asleep because it takes forever to get to SeaTac and I need to get there three hours for whatever. Um, you know what this feels like in trivial things, David here is fighting for his life. This is the dark night of the soul for David. He has unrelenting anxiety on him. And so the question is, how does David get out? How does he get out of the dark night of his soul? How does he find his way back home? This is what he says. Ultimate satisfaction in the middle of the night, in the darkest night, only happens in David's story, when he remembers and meditates on God. That's when the joy breaks in like shafts of light into his circumstance. And it's when thirsting for God, verse 1, becomes feasting on God in verse 5. That's the transition. It is actively saturating your soul with the truth that the creator of the universe loves you deeply, and he's going to take care of you. That's what he's preaching to himself. And we know this is what he means by meditate here because we see what he's calling to memory here. You see it right there. It says, verse 7, For you, God, have been my help. This is David's God. God has been his help. Help. And so in the darkest watches of the night, David calls this to memory and he begins to fill his mind and his soul up with that truth. You've done it before. You've helped me before. I know. And you're going to help me now. You will help me now. I believe it. And that feasting is possible for David and for Paul and for the Philippians and for us. That feasting is possible for us because what Paul said is 100% correct my God will most certainly supply every need of yours in his riches in Christ Jesus or in his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He was your help in the past. He will be your help in the future. Don't be anxious any longer, Jesus is telling us. You have nothing to fear because of the riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Every single act of help that God has ever shown you every single act of help, has come from, has flown from the heart of Christ's glory, which is the cross. The greatest help that God ever showed anyone was the cross. And it is also the greatest testament, the greatest standard, the greatest banner of his love for us, his steadfast love. He has been your help in the cross in a way that will take all of eternity for us to measure. That's what the cross is. And what this means is very simple. It means this, every threat in your life to your future and present joy in God, every threat in your life to that joy has been made in the cross hollow. 
It is a hollow threat. The anxiety is hollow because the way that Jesus fights your anxiety on the cross is by dying for you. That's how he kills your anxiety. He dies to remove that anxiety so that you can experience joy in God. Because in dying, Jesus removes every just and right penalty held against us and he crushes every barrier in his path for us to experience joy in him. He secures in the cross all who belong to him. They become his. He takes them. And he grants them a pathway back home where anxiety and worry are no longer part of our vocabulary. That's the secret Paul's talking about this. Consider this for a moment. In the cross, our sin and its penalty is made abundantly clear. Is it not? Our sin is made clear in the cross. That's what it took to forgive me? The Son of God? dying on a tree, it's made crystal clear. We see what put Jesus there. And we also see we don't deserve, we can't earn God's help. We do not deserve that. Yet in this same cross, when we deserved it the least, that's exactly when God helped us. So that we could say with David, for you, my Father, have been my help. That's what the cross is for us. And if he has helped us when we deserved it the least, then Jesus can tell us with great confidence, fear not, little flock, fear not, little flock, for it is my Father's good pleasure to give you the entire kingdom. Helping you through this anxiety is a piece of cake. It pleases God through the blood of his son to give us the kingdom. And even more than that, the king himself. This is what Psalm 63 is about. It is about getting God, removing every barrier, every impediment, and getting God Get filling our souls up with the reality of who he is. David says, my soul is satisfied when I get more of God. And though it is the dark watches of the night, though the circumstances are surrounding me, filling my heart with terror, filling my heart with anxiety, though all of that is happening, my treasure stops the fear when I remember how many times God's got me out of this junk. When I remember how many times God's fought for me. And if he was on this side of the cross... That's where he would draw his memory. That's where he'd draw his thoughts. The greatest time when God rescued me, he would recall when God, through Christ Jesus, fought his anxiety and fear all the way to the cross and put it to death by dying so that he could be our treasure forever. That's what happened on the cross. In a few minutes, we will be worshiping through communion. and That's the receiving of the bread and the cup, these elements that help us remember and articulate in worship the cross, which showed us God's immense love when he was our help, when he became our help. So that in the watches of the night, we can recall that moment. 
And so if your faith is in Christ Jesus, if your faith is in his sacrifice for you, I welcome you to take the elements as we sing the first psalm. And consider what this cross says about your fear. Consider what it says about your fear. If he did that, how will he not do all things for us? Consider what it says to you about anxiety. And when you consider the glory of Christ, especially what he did for you on the cross, when you do that, when you actively fight to see his love for you in the cross, that's when your heart's treasure shifts from things that you're trying to control in this world, things that are weighing on you heavily, things that are leaning on your heart, causing the anxiety to him. And you remove the fear, you gut the fear and the anxiety out of your life. Whether losing things in this world or whether receiving certain things or anything else, you are set free in the cross to know that God will ultimately supply every need of yours in Christ Jesus because Jesus bought and secured every single need that you will ever have with his blood. It's yours already. He paid for it. And then your job is to take that fact, that truth, and preach it into your soul every single day until your fear is completely obliterated. That's what we're called to do. Jesus knew this wasn't going to be a one-and-done deal, that he was, we were going to have to hear that command, do not be anxious, over and over and over again to remind ourselves, he bought that for me. That's mine because of his blood. This is what... Jesus is telling us through the cross of Christ. Listen to this. This is for you individually. I want you to hear these words from Jesus as though he was directing them to you personally. Fear not, little flock. Fear not, for it is your father's, your father's. You belong to him. It is his good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is glad to do it and he's paid for every single ounce of it to be yours. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We really do. We do. We love you, Jesus. We, we pray right now, Father God, that, that these scripture passages, that the truth that they have held out before us, Father God, would not be for us a small thing, that they would not be a light thing, Father, that they would not be something that rains on dry ground and then just evaporates, but Father, that you would drill deep into the depths of our souls, Father God, and that you would pour out your grace in our hearts so that we, myself included, I need this just as much as anybody else in this room, would take my eyes, take our eyes off of the things in this life that seek to rob us of joy in you, whether they're good or bad, and would help us fix our eyes on the only place where we can get ultimate satisfaction, on God. Take us home, God. Help us walk this path toward home to, to know you and to love you and to be in your embrace, Father God. We want out of the darkness of our souls. We want out of the wasteland. We want to know you. And you alone can satisfy that desire, Father God. You alone. So I pray right now for myself and my friends that you would do that today, that you would grant us sight so that these words here today 
would not simply be words and sentences, but they would be realities that get buried in the depths of our souls and bear enormous amounts of fruit, Father God. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.